Well, as we have prayed, as we have uh, mentioned, uh, most of you know that uh, John Underhill is in jail right now, is what I I like to say. Uh, Not in jail for committing a crime, but in jail for the sake of the gospel, leading a a weekend spiritual program uh, for the inmates. I got a a picture of him there. Uh, I grabbed this from the internet, and uh, this is WREX. uh, TV got in there, and, and uh, Mr. Underhill, where is he? Over there, he's playing the guitar, he's, he's jamming away, but that kind of gives you an idea of what's taking place. You've got uh, men there in their jumpsuits, you've got uh, uh, outsiders in regular clothes, they're having a, a worship service, um, sort of like what we had today, although not, not in a church building, but they're in a, in a jail, so a jail pod is is what it is, and there's preaching, and there's sharing, and it's all all focused upon aiming at the heart of these men. Uh, yesterday, I emailed John, said, how are things going? He said this, he said, the men are experiencing love in a way they've never seen or experienced it before. One quote from an inmate was this, this is the first time my whole life that I feel like I'm not alone. It's kind of no accident to why he's in prison. Uh, why he's in jail, or rather, so awaiting a, a trial. But that is the that is the hurt of some of these men. And uh, yesterday they focused uh, on, on forgiveness, forgiveness of self, forgiveness of others, and today they're focused beyond God's grace, the obstacles of God's grace, walking in God's grace, and what it means to abide in Christ. And um, now these men, in order to be involved, there's there's got to be some level of spiritual commitment. Uh, for them to come in. So in other words, this isn't just the riffraff of the jail coming in. These are people who have been engaged in Bible study, and I think even they've made a, a profession of faith, uh, I, I think, or, or maybe strongly interested or something. So there, there's some interest there. Now, certainly among them, there's some jailhouse religion, right? They've hit rock bottom, and they've turned to Jesus, but they're only turning to Jesus because they have nowhere else to turn, and, and uh, perhaps over time when when the crisis passes, there'll be no faith because that faith failed in the long run. It wasn't genuine. There, there could be jailhouse religion there, but certainly I, I do believe that there are some genuine believers there who will sustain by God's, be sustained by God's grace to continue on. And maybe they were believers before they were arrested and they simply got caught up in the wrong crowd or didn't heed the advice of Proverbs 1.10, My son, of sinners entice you, do not consent. They were enticed by the sinners and made some mistakes and did some stupid things. Or maybe they came to Christ in jail through the Bible studies that they have there. They recognized their sin and they they saw their need for for a Savior. As I've been thinking about what's going on there, thinking about these men, particularly thinking about those who know know and trust Jesus, think about them, right? Their, Their sins, from God's perspective, are forgiven. But yet, from society's perspective, they... They owe a debt that they will pay to society. But the debt they owe to God for, for those very same sins are wiped away, forgiven through the blood of Jesus. And someday they will enter into the joy of Christ. You know, I think about the thief on the cross who was being crucified right there with Jesus. And uh, the other thief was mocking Jesus. And, and he was for a time. And then, then he turned and he rebuked the other criminals. He said, why are, why are you mocking him? We, we are dying justly, but he unjustly... And, and uh, he himself confessed his sin, acknowledged the sinlessness of Jesus, and then pleaded Jesus for mercy. Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And remember Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, that, that thief on the cross is the same as many of the men in, in, in jail. Is that, is that yes, he, he, he's free, but he's still bound. Kind of both at, at the same time. Um, he died for his sin upon the cross. But yet... Through Christ's new forgiveness and new paradise. And, and that's, you know, the, the inmates are just like we, we are in many ways. That uh, every believer in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven, but yet we're not maybe in a jail cell, but we're in sinful bodies. And, and our spirits are free, we're spiritual beings, but we're still in the flesh, we're still sinful beings. And as such, there's this battle within us, the battle between our, our spirit and our flesh. And that's exactly what, what Paul addresses here in Romans chapter 7. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles as I will right now. Romans chapter 7. We're talking page 943 in, in the Pew Bibles. And our, our text today is, is verses 14 through 25. I really thought about trying to 
trying to make it shorter, um, but I do believe it comes as a unit. Um, verse 14 and 25, as we'll see, say much the same thing. Um, it is one thought, that's for sure, and to break it up into a couple of different ways, I think is artificially um, cutting it up because I think it all is talking about the same thing. And as I read, I want you to listen for the battle, right? Listen for the battle within the heart of Paul. <clears throat> <clears throat> Romans seven fourteen to 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see a, a different law, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. The title of my message this morning is The Struggle for Sanctification. That's what Paul is really aiming at here. He's, he's aiming at his sanctification and he's aiming to get that, but yet there's a struggle. There's a, a, a battle going on. And indeed, this is the, the context of, of Romans here, right? You remember our, our S words? There's sin and salvation. We're right in the middle of sanctification. We've seen sin in chapters 1 through 3, how we're all condemned and under the wrath of God as sinners, and we deserve His punishment for our sins. And then midway through chapter 3, Paul makes that turn where the, the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. In chapter 3, 21, it's now the, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's the, the kindness of God, and we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Romans 3.24, we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then beginning in chapter 6, he starts talking about our sanctification. And, and he's been, been talking about that the, the whole time. And so the, the struggle for sanctification fits right in here. And, and in chapters 6 and 7, his exhortations are clear. You who believed in Jesus have died with Jesus. And as a result, because we've died with Jesus, we're no longer slaves of sin. We're slaves of righteousness to serve in a new way. I mean, just, just consider some verses. Chapter 6, verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or chapter 6, 11 and 12. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Right? We consider ourselves dead to sin. We, we ought not to let sin reign in our bodies. For, verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law but under grace. Sin, sin should have no dominion over us, because we're not under this tyranny of the law anymore. We're under grace. And, and the affirmation to the Romans in chapter 6, verse 17, Thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. Chapter 7, verse 6. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Just command after command, just piling on, just kind of saying that you've died to Christ, you've died to sin, you should be alive to righteousness. Don't let sin reign in your more bodies. Put it to death. Thanks be to God that you've become obedient from the heart. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. But, but one thing is noticeably absent from all these commands here in chapter 6 is uh, any sense of struggle. I mean, I mean from, from chapter 6, verse 1, you know, through chapter 6, verse, at least verse 7, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 6, rather, it, it, there's very little sense you, you almost get the sense that, that Paul is just saying, you trust Christ, you'll be totally free from your sin. 
And it's not a problem, it's not a difficulty, but it all changes here in verse 14 where, where Paul's going to make his struggle very apparent. He, he's going to talk about his own struggle with sin as he, he seeks to follow in the ways of, of holiness. And thus, the title of my message, right, the struggle for sanctification. Now, it's not that Paul hasn't mentioned his struggle with sin before. He did. Last week we saw that. In chapter 7, 7 through 13, I want to read it, where Paul essentially is giving his testimony of what the law did in his life to convict him of his sin. Notice how I read this, right? These are all past tense verbs. It's like, it's like what he did. What shall we say then, verse 7, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law... Sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Those are all past tense verbs. He's just saying that the the law which came exposed me to my sin. I I wish I'd seen this last week, but I just saw it it this week, that um, there's something about a a law and a command that makes you want to do it. And so there's a cartoon of uh, like a husband and a wife standing there, and there was a a sign that was right there. and And the sign said this, Do not juggle machete knives. And the husband was right there with the wife. He said, you know, for some reason, I just have this urge to juggle machete knives. And uh, just that's the way the law worked. And as the law exposed Paul to his sin, his testimony, then he saw his sin. And although not included here, that was the very means by which he came to, to faith in Jesus. But it was all his testimony. But, but everything changes it in verse 14. From 14 through 25, we all present tense. Verbs. Just, just, just look. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can read it at home or kind of scan while I'm, I'm preaching here. But look, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Verse 15. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that's good. It's not if I did what I didn't want. I mean, it's not past. It's every bit a, a present tense verb. And so I think that the change in tense from, from the past way in which sin convicted him and showed him his sin, and now he's dealing with the struggle of sin in the, the present time, in a, in a present tense. He's talking about seeking to overcome his sin. That is the, the struggle for sanctification. That's what I think Paul's talking about in 14 and following. But before we get there, I, I do feel like I, I need to mention this because there are some good, strong biblical theologians who would disagree with what I just said. Now, not, not disagreeing with a change in tense, um, not, not, uh, not disagreeing that grammatically, but the fact that Paul is dealing with this present sin they would, they would talk about. See, they, they would say that, no, Paul is still looking back, kind of still his old testimony about where he was before he came to faith in Christ, right? The, the struggles with sin that, that led him to Christ. In other words, there are some people who believe that this section Paul's talking as he was an unbeliever. Now, that might shock you, but it is, it is a, it's a big view okay, out, out there. And, and, and the reason why people believe that is because there are, are verses here that Paul describes himself in such a way, and you guys say, is that describing a believer or an unbeliever? So, like, for instance, verse 14. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. I mean, you could take that as describing a, an unbeliever, right? I'm, I'm a flesh sold under sin. That's very close to slave terminology, right? where Paul describes what, what he was like before he was believed. Like chapter 6, verse 20. You were slaves of sin. Or, or even he says, I was of the flesh. I was sold under sin. Can those things be said of a believer, people argue? Similar terminology comes up, say in verse 23, I I am captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I'm a captive. 
I mean, can, can someone who's been free of sin, as we'll read in chapter 8, verse 2, that the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Can you be free of that and yet still be captive at the same time? Or some of those who contend that Paul's talking about his pre-conversion would look at his description of himself, like in verse 18, and particularly his, his impotence, his, his no ability even to walk righteously. Look at verse 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. He says, I, I don't have the ability to do what's right. What I don't want to do, I, I keep on doing, right? Does that, does that describe a believer or a non-believer? In chapter 6, verse 14, when Paul says, Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Furthermore, he says, nothing good dwells in me. What about the Holy Spirit dwelling in him as a, as a believer? Can that be true or not? And, and so for that reason, some people say he's talking about a pre-conversion state. And I just, I, I argue kind of as strong as I can, just to... To put that out there. And I recognize the argument. I recognize Paul's verbiage. But that can go both ways because there are some verses in here that can only be described of a believer. Look, like, look at verse 15. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Here it is Paul's desire. His desires to do what's right. His, his, he, he wants to do right. He wants to do good. That's not an unbeliever. An unbeliever we read in Romans 3 is not seeking God. He's not pursuing God. He's very happy in his sin. He wants to join others in their sin with him. Uh, very little care what is right or not. You find that passion again in verse 21. I find it to be a law that I want to do right. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And so here, here you've got someone who's desiring to do right. There's a heart for God there, which isn't talking about someone in a pre-converted state. This is just not, that doesn't, doesn't work there. Or, like verse 22, how, how can an unbeliever delight in the law of God in my inner being, right? Deep in the recess of my heart, I delight in the law of God. This is Ezekiel 36. This is Jeremiah 33, the new covenant, that I will put my laws upon your heart. And here he's saying, I have it in my heart, this delight and desire. Is that true of an unbeliever? And so you, you kind of look at both sides and just say, well, can you look at some of those verses that seem to describe an unbeliever? Can you look at them in a way that describes a, a believer, just a, a struggle with sin? Um, and so likewise, if it's describing a believer, can those things be said of an unbeliever? And I really think the best way to describe this is present context, his current struggle with sin as a believer. He's struggling to, to live up the way, line up the way there's reality of his union with Christ. In other words, right, he's united with Christ, and here he admits his struggle and his difficulty of seeking to, to, to live up to that. And something's holding him back. And you say, what's holding him back? It's, it's really his flesh, because Paul was experiencing this, this tug of war in his life between the flesh and the spirit. And, and I think this is where you can see and understand Romans seven right here is it that, that there's this battle going on and Paul acknowledges this battle and, and here's what it is, right? And everything that talks about him being an unbeliever is actually just a residual sin effect of his body. And everything he talks about delighting in the inner man, that's the spirit going this way. And so he's kind of pulling back. But this is a present reality in all of us who believe in Jesus. We have the flesh and the spirit that battle against each other. And look at verse fourteen. We know that the law is spiritual. But I am the flesh sold under sin. You see, everything the law directs us is in the way that we should go. It's in, in the way of the Spirit. It's our flesh, but the, the flesh pulls then in the opposite direction. Or, or, or how our passage ends. Look at verse 25, and this is where it's clearer. The second half, right? So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin, right? Here's Paul's a believer serving the law of God in his mind. Seeking to follow after his ways, and yet he says, My flesh, I'm serving the law of sin, and it's serving in a different direction. And so that's why there might be these, these sayings in, in Romans 7 that it seemingly maybe contradict. Is that really true of a, of a believer? And I just say that it's true of the flesh, that the flesh pulls us away and pulls us in another direction. And Paul doesn't see how he can escape. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? It's almost as if he's imprisoned in his own flesh. Yes, he wants to do right. 
The work of God is in his heart. He's delighting in the law of God. But his, his flesh is pre- preventing that, that desire. And that's where the, the jail imagery is helpful, right? An inmate, an inmate might be free from his sin, but yet, yet he's still behind bars. And, and he still feels like in, in, incarcerated and, and captured, and, and he's not getting out. And so likewise, Paul, with the flesh and the spirit, he's the battle. And this is the battle of every human. This is the battle of every believer. This is what it means to be a son of Adam, to have a sinful flesh inherited. See, our minds and our, our spirits are redeemed, but we're, we're trapped in a body that, that's got a habit of sinning. Uh, I remember one of my seminary professors. This is a long time ago, so there's a lot that I don't remember, but there are some little snippets. And um, one of the, the we were covering the doctrine of sin. I remember, and sin in Greek is hamartia, so it's harmardiology. Okay, is the the big technical theological term for sin. And uh, what, what this professor talked about was the the struggle here in Romans seven about our sin. He called it our harmardiological hangover. That is our, our sin hangover, like this that we, we used to do, and we've become habit and ingrained by it, but now we come to Christ and we still got this, this habit of what we used to do. It's kind of like a, a cartoon I saw um, of these uh, people talking to one another and, and just this going back and forth, back and forth. One says to the other, Paul, well, Paul seems confused. And, and the other says, no, not confused. The problem of sin is a lifelong struggle. And then says, uh, maybe for, for some, for me, sin is like riding a bicycle. Once you learn how, you never forget. And that's a little bit about what, what Paul's talking about here, about the flesh. Is that You've learned, and in fact, I just say this, is that if you've come to Christ from a, a sinful background, if you were, right? There's, there wasn't an umbrella of protection of a godly home or, or maybe a church bringing, you maybe bring in some, some particular things from the fresh flesh that you've learned how to ride the bike that way that when it comes into your Christian life, it's kind of hard to shed because once you learn to ride a bike, you never seem to forget. But one of the things, also the attitude in here, is see how much Paul hates it. You know, one of the people, some, there's another view that some people say, well, yes, Paul's talking about being a believer, but he's talking about being a weak believer. He's talking about being one who just can't get over sin, and, and I, don't, I don't believe that for a minute because... Paul is anguishing. Oftentimes, say someone who's a carnal Christian, I mean, that's a category in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's not a good category, but you've got people there who are walking in the flesh. And, but Paul is, is desiring, he's like passionate, he's like frustrated with it that he can't rid himself of the sin. Look at verse 15. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I hate what I do. And so you just see the passion there that says, I want to, I want to, I want to get rid of that. I don't want to walk that way anymore. Or in verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. He so wants to be free from his sin. He so wants to escape his flesh. He so wants to, to bring him to, to serve the law of God, but he is serving, verse 25, the law of sin. His desire is to get set free, but, but he can't. Can you relate? This is the heart of every believer. Is... Uh, seeing what we should be, seeing what God calls us to be, and seeing where we fall short. That's what Paul is talking about. And that's the experience of every believer who follows God. You know, one of the things I often tell the kids at Kids Club is that, that, that the Bible is not a book about good people who do great things for God and then God rewards them for their greatness. No, instead what you see in the Bible is you see wicked people who stumble and mumble through life, and yet God, by His grace, blesses them anyway. That's the story of the Bible. And you just, you just see it right through. I mean, think about the, the struggle with sin that believers had. Take Abraham, the father of faith. It says in Genesis 15, verse 6, that he believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. And yet a few chapters later, we find him in Gerar, ruled by Abimelech. And uh, he lied. Abraham lied to Abimelech placed his wife in great danger, saying that she is my sister. And, and if God then reveals himself to Abimelech, Abimelech, why did you say that? And, and, and Abraham said that he was fearful of his own safety. He said, there's no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. And so as a, as a result of, uh, of things, one of the things that Paul said is that he, he like, like Abraham, right, he, he struggled with the flesh. 
Right? We'll just we'll just put that aside. You know, here let me let me reconnect here. Let me, let me try this again. Hang on. Where should it go? Um, Abraham battled with the flesh. Yes, he was a believer, but he, he battled in lying as well. That's the battle of Romans 7. Or take David, a man after God's own heart. He struggled with sanctification, right? When the, the men were out at war, he was at home watching a naked lady shower. And one thing led to another, and adultery was committed, and, and then murder was committed. Then he tried to cover it up, and he tried to keep silent about it. And when you work out the time, David tried to keep silent about his sin for a year. Because it was after the baby was born. A year of keeping his sin unconfessed. Here's David, right? The man after God's own heart. So David comes teaching in Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up was by the heat, fever heat of summer. He said just God's pressure was on him and he was, he was drying up because of his sin. And he was just struggling with that. And he, he, he was quiet. Then he said, I acknowledge my sin to you. And I said, I, I will not cover my iniquity. You said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, the teaching point is this, David says. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you in a time when you may be found. And then he says, be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curved by brit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Psalm 32. In other words, right? don't be stupid like this horse that's just got to be dragged around or this, or this mule. But you know what? David was that horse and that mule for over a year as he was quiet. And I, I do believe that's the struggle that, that, that the man after God's own heart was struggling with. It wasn't just easy for him. It was hard because it was a battle of the flesh. He was walking in the flesh rather than the spirit, just exactly what Paul's talking about. Or take Peter. The leader of all the apostles. Picture with me, right? The last night, he's with Jesus and all the disciples around the table. He says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples were all sorrowful and began, is it I? Is it I? Will I betray you? Will I betray you? And then he identified John and, I'm sorry, Judas. And Judas went out. And later on, the Mount of Olives, consider the, the exchange. You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the, the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. She said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Again, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples, right, were saying the same thing. If anybody had reason for one particular action, act of righteousness, to, to drive and, and follow through, it was Peter. I promised to Jesus, I promised in the presence of all my disciples, this is what I'm, I'm going to do. And uh, then in the presence of a few servant girls, Peter denied the Lord. I don't know. I don't know what you mean. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. The rooster crowed and Peter went out and wept bitterly. His flesh was weak. He did what he did not want to do. He, he did the very thing he hated. His mind was serving the law of God. Yes, I'll do that. But with his flesh, he was serving the law of sin. That's Paul's struggle. That's our struggle. This is the struggle for sanctification. You know, this is Paul's struggle. It's not just in Romans 7. He, he said this elsewhere. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. It's a trustworthy statement and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Remember what he says? Among whom I am foremost. He didn't say that I was the foremost of sinners. He said, I am the foremost of sinners. Present tense. He's talking about the, the believer's struggle is what he's talking about right here in, in Romans chapter 7. Or, or consider right, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15. He's talking about all the apostles. He said, I am the very least of all the apostles. I'm the least, I'm the less of all of them. And yet, it's interesting that even Paul in that context speaks about how it was God's grace that helped him and enabled him. He says, I labored more than all of them. 
Like of all the apostles, Paul was laboring top among all of them, but he considered himself, I am the least of all of them. But it's by God's grace that he did what he did, but he understood his sin. He understood he was a persecutor of the church and a violent aggressor. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, he called himself the very least of all the saints. This is the mighty apostle Paul, right? Who wrote a fourth of the New Testament by volume. He says, I am the very least of all the saints. Makes Romans 7 a present day, a present battle. Well, that's a long introduction, okay? But it says to put some categories for you. And we're just going to zip through Romans 7 because it just says everything that I said to you. And really, outlining is very difficult because it's uh, just kind of meanders. A little bit like 1 John, kind of meandering through, but says the, the exact same things. I just got two principles for you this morning, uh, two outlines or, or, or two principles that I want you to, to keep in mind. Okay, two principles. One is this, is um, the law is spiritual. And the second is this, is that I am of the flesh. Now, I'm pulling those straight from verse 14, right? The, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Right there, there's the struggle, is that, is that we want everything, we want to be everything the law would call us to be, but, but we're not. And we fail so easily and so quickly. Look at verses 15 and 16. Okay. He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. That's the reality of a believer. We know what God calls us to do. We know what we ought to do, and yet we fail. And in our failure, even we acknowledge the, the goodness of a law because we're not doing what our heart longs for because our heart longs for the law, but we're not doing that. You know, I, I think in, in recent days, uh, David and I, we've been watching this, uh, this show on YouTube. It's called uh, Wipeout. You guys ever seen that show? Okay. So, you know, right, they've, they've got these different obstacles, and if they don't do that, right, they fall and they splash into the water. Now, if we had the overhead going, I, I got some, some cool pictures here of the, uh, the Wipeout, those big red balls. Right? And, and, and the, the people are here right on, right on the edge, and they've got to jump across these four, four balls and then get to the other side. And like, that's what they want to do. And so you know, they've just gone through a mud pit. They're often muddy and sloppy and slimy. And then they go and they try to, try to land on the first one. And you know how far they normally get? <laughs> like maybe the first one. And they slip off and they fall. And, they, and it's extremely hilarious. In fact, that's why we watch it. Okay, it's because it's fun just to see the wipeout, and, and that's that's what happened. But the, the, the contestants want to get across, and, and and yet they know how how almost impossible it is. But but they make this this college attempt, and they, and they try to go, and we've seen a few make it, so it is possible. Um, but they long to be the other side, and oftentimes they end up in the drink, and that's what Paul sometimes feels like when he's talking about keeping the law. He says, verse right. 17 and 18. He says, It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. Here it is. I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to, to carry it out. There it is. It's, it's not the ability. I, I want to get to the other side, but I see in my flesh I'm just not able to do so. And so you think about wipeout. You know, why are people wiping out? Well, in, in one regard, it's not their fault. Because... The obstacle's too difficult, the balls are too squishy, there's everything slick, there's the momentum, there's a distance to travel, and they just have this, this difficult time, and, and they can't do it. Um, and that's what Paul is saying, right? that, that, that I can't do it. But he understands it, and he explains it here, that, that it's sin that, that dwells in him. Look at verse 17. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. And here he goes, he lays out the playing field. There's a, the spiritual law, he says, I'm of the flesh, right? And a fleshly man can't keep the spiritual law. It's just, it's just too difficult for him. He can't love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's going to fall someplace. He can't love his neighbor as himself. He's going to fall someplace. He, he sees, right, no idols. And he just can't, he can't do that. He's trouble keeping his mouth shut. Now, and, and Paul says, the, the issue with that, it, it's not me, because I am with Christ. And it's Ephesians 2. 
I guess 5 and 6 say that we are seated up with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Like that's where we are. That's where I am. But there's another reality going on. It's, it's the flesh, he says, the sin that is in me. Now, he's not trying to shift the blame like Adam did. It's, oh, that woman that you gave me. He's not saying it's that, no, it's sin's problem. It's not mine. No, he takes it. He takes on all that responsibility, but he says that I, I act different than I want, and it's because the sin that dwells in my flesh as I battle the sin and spirit battle. It's, it's my material self. And that's the same thing he continues on in verse 19 and 20. I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want, I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do, what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Right? See, it's the, the sin in the flesh. It's this harmoniological hangover that, that, that compels me, that pushes me that way, rather than walking in the way of the Spirit. Yes, we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But our redemption is taking place in a sinful body. I heard a preacher this week as I listened through some sermons on this text just talk about uh, you know, all that needs to happen for us to get to heaven is just we need to rid ourselves of our bodies. Because our minds right, are serving the law of God and that's, that's where we're at in the spirit we are there. So just take away our bodies. Kind of just to emphasize just the, the, the difference there about about the, the flesh that kind of pulls over. So, at this point, you know, I do want to stop at, at the end here of verse 20. We're, we're going to finish the passage, but, but I just want to stop and take some inventory. And just, rather than just talking in generals, in general, let, let's think about specifics. What about for you? Are, 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 there, are there issues in your life where you can say, yes, I see this, that I that I want to do that, but I am just not capable. This sin is like pulling me, dragging me down. So uh, I, I just put some things down here. And for all of us, it's going to be different. Okay, but, but maybe just how you allocate your time. Like, you know you should be with your family. You know you should have some time praying. You know that you should be reading the scriptures. But... Are the things pulling away? Whether that's work or, or whether it's your, your sports, your activities, or your hobbies. Is it, is it, but are those things so pulling you that that's, that's the only way you can go? Or what about distractions? You know, more and more I've been reading, listening, and I experience as well just the distractions of a, of a, of a phone. What do I need to do, Andrew? How about this? Does that help? Just, well, what about a phone or distractions? What about maybe distraction of video games or distraction of the internet? Just that's, that's more and more. Just you know, uh, uh, just with ADD and stuff. I wouldn't be surprised. A lot of that's linked to a lot of digital media. We just don't sit next to board books. Is that like I'm just frittering time away? Is is that an issue for you? What about laziness? Is that an issue? Like, you just you know what you should be doing, but you're just like, I just want to sit here. I don't want to do this. Maybe it's procrastination. Like, I know what I should be doing, but I just not. I'm just not doing it. And and you're trying, but but there are other things to get in the way, or or maybe materialism for you. Just, I love the things of the world. I mean, I just, the, the things of the world, like, capture my, capture my attention, they capture my thought, and I can't, I just can't get away with them. Or what about, what about anxiety? I mean, think about Matthew chapter 6, clearly says, do not be anxious for anything. You, you can't, you can't add a single day to your life, right? So why are you worrying about it? So, so I mean, it's, it's a matter of not knowing what to do, so it's a matter of, of knowing, but yet not being able to... Okay, here, how about... This is, this is distracting too, right? We've got we to gotta fix that by God's grace. So, um, Materialism. So maybe it's just stuff in the world. That you know that our, our life, that, that we're, we're born naked, we're going to die. 
working with us. We're just here. So what's the stuff? We, but yet we're amassing it. Is that, is that yours? And, and for some reason, you're just going to keep it. You're going to want it more. Or entertainment. Maybe, maybe you, you know what I'm thinking about right now. I'm thinking about the Bears game. They start 45 minutes. I mean, listen, this is the only time they're not below 500. is today, right? The Packer fans have got it good because they're going to be better. The Bears fans, it's okay. That's all right. But entertainment, right? Is, is that... Is that like, oh, can I, is that, is that consuming, is that, am I like drawn like a magnet to that game? Do I gotta watch it? What about bad sites on the internet? I, I know that's a problem for many. Like going places you shouldn't go. You know you shouldn't go there. But is there something just, oh, I gotta go there. Or idols. God, God says you should have no idols. Or, or are, there, are there things that are taking the place of God in your life? That, that, that you feel like compelled there. Like, I, I, like, like you're pushed there. And I know that's bad. I know that's bad. I know this is good. But the flesh is pulling you there. Or what about fear? Maybe fear of the future causes some anxiety there. Just, and you know the Bible says, right? Do not fear for I am with you. I, I will be with you, and fear not, little flock, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. You know what the Bible says, but there's just fear in you about some, some future things. You fear about the health of your husband, or you fear about the, the job market, or you fear about this, or you fear people, or you fear... You know what the Bible says, and, and, and yet, are you fearing? Or what about substance abuse? I mean, in particular, like those those who were involved in substance abuse before they were saved, that can be a constant tension to be pulled back because you, you like the feeling, or you like the drugs, you like the pleasure. And you just can't do it. I mean, why can't people stop smoking? It's because there's the pleasure of the nicotine. Why can't people stop drinking? It's the pleasure of the alcohol. Why can't they stop their drugs? It's because they got the, the addiction of the drugs that, that like makes them a slave. Exactly what he's talking about. The law is spiritual, right? But I'm of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. Like this is pulling me. My mind, I'm serving the law of God. My flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. It, why is it? It's because the pull of your flesh, you've learned how to ride that drug bike. Or maybe depression. You know, there's just, you know, really, I mean, we should not be depressed. Okay? Uh, just the, the joy we have in Jesus, the, the glory that awaits us, depression should not be among us. Now, now there are dispositions, different people's you know, perspectives. There could be some chemical things going on there. But the, the Bible promises this great and glorious reality. And you know, if, if you're depressed, it could be similar to what Paul's talking about. Like, oh, I'm, just, I'm there, but I want to get out. And it's, it's a besetting sin like any other sin. It's just difficult. It's can't, you know, none of these things I don't think you're just going to solve like that. But the first step is to acknowledge where practically Romans 7 is talking about in your life. Where, where is your struggle? Maybe pride. Maybe just pride. I got it all under control. I, I'm good. I'm, and maybe that's your, your thing. that you, can, you just can't... Uh, that someone said something and you're always making it better. You're always showing yourself a little better. Maybe, maybe that's where your tendency is. Or, or, or maybe you're just abusive in your words. Like, oh, why didn't I say that? Why can't I be encouraging? Why am I always so discouraging with my words? Why can't I... Well, maybe it's this, this battle of the flesh that you need to first start like... Like David said in Psalm 32, acknowledge your sin, confess it, and identify where this, where this battle is. And, and I think in some regards the first step is to acknowledge where that is. And, and I think secondly is just, just pray for God's grace to, to help overcome it. If anything that Romans 7 comes with, it ought to come with an encouragement that there are these things and these, these sins that are in us that we're just not... It's just hard to break. Now, we want to break them, right? By, by God's grace, we will. But there are just some things that we will always struggle with because we're in the flesh. And I think you ought to be encouraged by that, that the Apostle Paul was burdened by that. And, and, and there is hope in Jesus. 
But, but look at what Paul says. We're going to finish this real fast, right? So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Right? This is principle. I, even when I want to do right, the evil is right there. Whatever that temptation is, whatever that thought process is, whatever that allurement is. For I delight the law of God in my inner being, verse 23, but I see in my members, and there's where it is, right? It's in my members, this other law. It's in the flesh, Another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. See, it's, it's not that we in our mind spiritually were not captive. It's that our flesh is captive. Captive to the law of sin in our, our members. Uh, I, I love the illustration of Psalm 119, right? If you, if you know anything about Psalm 119, it's the longest psalm in all the Bible. It's got 176 verses. Uh, they're all nicely alliterated in the Hebrew poetry. It's just an amazing sort of thing. And uh, with the exception, I think, of three or four verses, every single verse mentions the law of God or the commandments of God or the precepts of God or, or somehow something about the word of God. It's really a love poem to the word of God. Listen to some of these words. Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119.17.18, Deal bountifully for your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. Or verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Or verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And just over and over and over again he's reflecting upon God and his word and how good that is. And the very last verse of Psalm 119 Verse 176 says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. So there you see a a spiritually mature believer loving and longing for God's word and yet confessing that I've gone astray. And that's exactly what Paul is is talking about here. We're like a, a prisoner in jail, in jail by our flesh and we're captive I just ask you, do you feel this? Because Paul is really exposing his heart. He comes with, with a, a cry of verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you, do you ever look at any of the sins I, I talked about and just say, oh, ah, ah, and struggle and just hate your sin? That's exactly where, where Paul was. He said, I'm a, a wretched man. But you know what? Wretched men are men saved by the grace of God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Right, sing it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Right there it is. God's amazing grace. God saves wretches. You know what? God doesn't save good people because they don't see their sin. But he saves wretched people who see and agonize just as Paul did. I'm a wretched man. I need delivering right from this flesh, this body of this death. And that's where the glorious gospel comes in. Verse 25. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there, there's the glories of that. Yes, I'm a wretched man. Yes, I've got this body that I just need to get rid of. It's, it's killing me. It's, it's bringing me into sin. Jesus said, right? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, take it out. I mean, just talking about wretched, just hating your flesh because of what it's pulling you down to do. But... Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord through whom the redemption comes. And next week, next time, chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're in Christ Jesus. Yes, the sin is there. Yes, you've got that hangover. Yes, you've learned to ride that sin bike, and there it is. But there, there's no condemnation for you. And there's the, the good news of the glories of Christ. There's talking about the, the security of everything that we have in Jesus. Chapter 8 ends with, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor life nor death nor any other created thing 
will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We're going to transition from sanctification to this security of what we have in Jesus, of everything that he can can bring to us. And there's the gospel. That's what you've got to rejoice in. So, so today is not a day of morbid in, introspection. You know, there's some people who, who look to themselves and they just, oh, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. Now, now, Paul did that a little bit, but he hated it, but he quickly directed himself to Jesus. And, and, and those people who are, who are so into their own sin, actually, that's their besetting sin. They're into the sin. You should see and understand your sin. Hate your body because of it. Hate your flesh, but then love Jesus with great joy that there's no condemnation in, to, in him. Now, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to talk about that in our small groups tonight. What a great way to be around with people in our small groups to be looking at Romans 7 and thinking about our lives rather than just one person talking, us sharing maybe some things or sins or what we're, what we're dealing with or how we can pray for one another. And it's just a, a call to honesty and transparency. It's a call to rejoice in the glory of the gospel and to be patient with one another. So just even, even those, we're kicking those off again. There's one at our house. There's one at the Weeby's house. On Friday, there's going to be one at the Gusky's house. And we're starting one up north at the Henning's house. So if you're up north and interested in involved in that, just talk with Todd. And we're just going to kind of see what kind of interest is there. I think it will be a, a great thing. But what a, what a great way to apply Romans 7, right, coming tonight. We have three groups across our city meeting, thinking through all this, this matter of sin and our struggle for sanctification. We long to be sanctified people, right? We long to walk in ways pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray for His grace and strength. Father, I pray, God, in these, in these ways, God, that you would help us to see our sins, see our own wretchedness. God, see the, the grace that's in Christ Jesus. God, help us to, to glory in the gospel far more than we wallow in our shame. And God, may we, as a, as a church, be a, a group of people who, who see our sin. God, and yet see our Savior shining more brightly than we see our sin. And Father, I, I would pray, even as each of us perhaps has identified some, some sin that we can identify really right here. Um, Lord, I, I pray your grace to help us see that in perspective and, and even to overcome that, God, by, by your grace, really. And so work that in our lives that we be genuine people who walk in the in the truth of the glory of the gospel of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.